Hi, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of Attendance Bias. I'm your host, Brian Weinstein. It's not unusual for musical theater to pop up as a conversation topic on this podcast. After all, despite their down-to-earth appearances, Fish is a very theatrical band. But today's guest may be the first professional musician who has played percussion and drums with Broadway-level pit bands. Today's guest is Ashley Bayer, and as a fan of drums, theater, and of course Fish, I am thrilled to welcome her to Attendance Bias. For today's episode, Ashley chose to discuss The Fish Show from July 4th, 2012 at the Jones Beach Amphitheater. In the summer of 2012, Fish seemed to make an effort to play as many individual songs as possible over the course of the summer tour. This show, with its bust-outs over the holiday, made for a very fun, if somewhat unoriginal show. But it wasn't the music that convinced Ashley to pick this show. It's the plethora of stories before, after, and during this Independence Day. So let's join Ashley Bayer to talk about Stephen Sondheim, spotting Trey on the Upper West Side, and whether or not 2012 counts as old school fish, as we discuss July 4th, 2012 at Jones Beach. Ashley, welcome to Attendance Bias. How are you? I'm doing great, Brian. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. I've uh, listened to your podcast for, I guess, a couple years now, so glad to finally be uh, participating. Yeah, we are coming up on, I guess, in the spring, in the upcoming spring, it'll be three years, oh, which wow. is pretty insane. <laughs> Thanks. I guess the uh, the pandemic only counts as like a week for me, like that all blurred <laughs> together. So it feels kind of strange at this point that to measure it in years from 2020. But anyway, um, Ashley, we are here to talk about a number of topics We'll talk about you as a professional musician. I'm really excited to dig into that. We're here to talk about Fish in the summer of 2012. And then more specifically, the show that you chose, July 4th, 2012 at Jones Beach, us at our most patriotic. But before we get all the way there to 2012, let's hear about you. Can you tell us a little bit about your history as a percussionist and a drummer? Sure. Um, I started playing music um, in the school band program in fourth grade uh, in Maryland, where I grew up. I quickly fell in love with drumming and playing with other people. And by the time I was in middle school, I had a few teachers kind of recommend that I start taking it a little more seriously and study with more prominent teachers, do some summer camps because they thought I had a lot of potential. And um, I did kind of proceed down that path. And by the time I was in high school, I knew I wanted to be a professional musician one day. For college, I applied to music schools and I got an undergrad and a master's degree in classical percussion. Uh, At the time, I was really into the orchestral world and thought that is where I wanted to be. By the time I was like halfway through grad school, I had a feeling that I was probably mostly going to be a drum set player. So I started focusing more on playing in bands, uh, jamming with other people, writing music rather than working on orchestral excerpts like every day, which is what basically classical music school is. And so I finished school. I went on a tour with a band that was doing decently well, had a great time, joined another band called Pitch Black Brass Band. We did a, a bunch of touring, mostly around the Northeast. Uh, and that lasted for five or six years. And once that kind of started fading out of the picture, 
I got back into one of my original musical loves, which is musical theater. And that is the space that I perform most often today. Was there a certain album or a certain piece that you heard where you were drawn, if not to the piano or to the vocals, that the drums stood out to you? The thing that comes to mind is one of my first ever professional gigs, which was at a summer theater near my hometown. I was in, I think, going into ninth grade. And the woman who was the music director was actually my um, general music educator in middle school. And we we were friends, basically, and she really um, nurtured my career. And she hired me to play this run of The Music Man. There's not really a particular like drum groove or song that comes to mind, but it was just like the whole experience of playing with an orchestra while you're supporting uh, singers, a whole chorus of singers of all ages. It was just a really awesome collaborative process. And that same music educator uh, was really instrumental in uh, passing on recommendations of shows for me to check out. So she was a huge Andrew Lloyd Webber fan, which is kind of controversial, but so she would send me, um, you know, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. And then eventually my favorite probably ever drum show, which is Jesus Christ Superstar, uh, historically. As a drummer or as a member of a pit band, do you focus mostly on just playing or are you a huge nerd when it comes to drama, when it comes to the show as a whole? Or are you just there for the job? It really depends on the show. And uh, I do a lot of like developmental theater. For example, the la- over the last two weeks, I've worked on two brand new musicals that are in the infancy stage. And at that level, as a musician, you often have more uh, of an input on like the way that the, the songs grow. But when you jump into a show like at a really high level that's already been worked out, all the music's already written, then your job really is to just kind of show up and do your part and whatever that may be, just reading the book down and supporting the rest of the company to the best of your ability. So it really, it really depends. If you have a lot of creative input as a drummer, you will probably get um, credit as an arranger, which is really nice, especially if a show ends up doing really well, like on like a Tony award-winning level. It would be amazing to be a Tony winner for contributing drum arrangements to a show. Yeah, that's a beautiful feather in your cap to have that as a credit. I saw on your website that uh, that you're part of a developing a developing musical. What is the name of it? Or are you not allowed to say yet? Um, the two shows that I just worked on last week, um, one is called Thebes, um, which is rooted in Greek mythology, which I am not an expert of. Um, (laughs) but it was written by two amazing friends, Katie and Emma Hathaway and Emma's partner, uh, Solon. And we did a reading at, uh, Rattlestick Theater, which is in the West Village, led by, um, this music director, Andrea Grody, who I've worked with a few times. And the other show is called Rutka, which is a mostly true story about um, a Polish teenager who um, has a diary that survived the Holocaust, though she did not. Um, and it was written also by a friend, Jocelyn McKenzie, and her writing partner, Jeremy Lloyd Stiles, who are two-thirds of an indie pop band called Pearl in the Beard, 
And we did that reading at uh, New York Public Library, who's trying to present more and more um, developmental theater. And uh, since it is about a diary, it was a nice book tie-in. But that, that show seems to be a little more developed than Thebes. So probably look out for Rutka first, hopefully uh, more soon, because it was fantastic to work on. The cast was amazing and the music was incredible. And for those shows, are you behind the kit or are you more in a percussion section with like a xylophone and other percussion instruments? Those were both a uh, drum set. The one uh, Thebes is just drum set and piano, very small. I, I pretty much played brushes and rods the whole time because the, the actors weren't even mic'd. So we had to play very quietly. And then Rutka was drums, piano, keyboard, bass. So full rhythm section. And then a cast of probably 20 people. And Ashley, where could listeners go to find all this information out about you and your projects? Uh, the best place would be my website, which is ashleybayer.com. That is Ashley, A-S-H-L-E-Y. Last name is B-A-I-E-R.com. I have a blog that I try to update pretty regularly that people could subscribe to if they want to stay in the know. Um, and I also have a list of all the shows that I have coming up. Well, Ashley, we've heard about you as a drummer and percussionist. I'm sure that will come back a little bit later, but let's hear about you as a fish fan. The reason that we're all here with the attendance bias lightning round. Attendance bias lightning round. So Ashley, right. when was your, when was your first fish show and what do you remember about it? My first fish show was uh, Star Lake 03, which is uh, July 29th, 2003, at what was then called Post Gazette Pavilion. I don't know what it's called now. Everybody calls it Star Lake. It's two hours from where I grew, grew up, which is like the closest, biggest shed from where I'm from. I was so excited about it because I had started listening to Fish probably a year or two prior when they were uh, on a hiatus. So it's like I there's not a lot of us that got into fish at that time. I found out like some people are, you know, consider themselves 2.0 people. But like I kind of came in between both eras. I don't really know how to define myself. <laughs> but um, it, it was interesting because I did have a year and a half or whatever to prepare for this first show. And I thought I knew not everything about fish, but a lot. And I don't know if you're familiar with that set list, but it is just like bust out central. So there were songs I never expected to hear. Like I never thought I'd hear Harpua, like let alone at my first show. And then there was just a ton of songs I'd never even heard of that they played. Like Brother, for example, I, that was the first time hearing that on the stage. Great Cross-Eyed, Thunderhead, which is definitely a rarity. It was a good time. I went with like a guy that I was kind of seeing at the time and some of his friends we camped that night, and then the next day, uh, Andy and I drove to hit both Camden shows as well that were on that tour. So it was a nice little uh, run for an 18-year-old to, you know, take in for the first time. It was it was pretty cool. Um, my most recent show was at the Garden, 12-30-2022. Oh, you're just knocking them down then. <laughs> well, it's really, I mean, I live... 25 minutes from Madison Square Garden. So it's so easy for me to go there. <laughs> that show from start to finish was awesome. I really, I didn't go to the New Year's show, but I went to the first, the, the first three nights. I loved them all. The third night was spectacular, top to bottom. I, I couldn't believe it. 
I think you may have answered this one already. So I have a backup question. So the quest, the next one on the lightning round is your favorite musical ever. Well, I don't know if I would say Jesus Christ Superstar is my favorite musical ever, but I don't know. It's up there. Let me, I'll, how about a, a, a related answer is I, I had this revelation, um, a Sondheim revelation recently, who is obviously a brilliant composer, uh, well regarded by everybody, like inside and outside of theater. And he's never just been my cup of tea, but my wife and I were lucky enough to see Into the Woods on Broadway a few months ago, and it had an insanely stellar cast, um, including Philippa Sue and Sarah Bareilles. And I could not believe how amazing every vocal performance was in that show. And I don't know, it, it kind of opened my eyes to Sondheim in a way that I hadn't before. So I, I'm, I might... Sondheim Stan, I'm not sure yet. <laughs> if you had all the money in the world, if you were a producer, if you had producer money and you could put together a musical and either revive it or you could just jump in and be the drummer for it, which one would it be? What would you revive or what would you put out there to tour with? <sighs> Man, I would love to perhaps commission Trey to write another musical. I really enjoyed his show, Hands on a Hard Body. I thought the music was excellent. It did not succeed on Broadway, but it's not exactly the kind of show that is meant to succeed on Broadway. Um, what do you, you mean know, by that? You don't leave the... Well, you... Especially in the last 15 years, there's been like a Disneyfication of Broadway in a way where it's like every show has... It, is, has extreme commercial appeal, um, either as like an original Disney musical or a jukebox musical, you know, something like um, A Beautiful no Noise, the new uh, Neil Diamond show. It's just like all Neil Diamond shows. Like that's just a safe bet. There's already a built-in audience. And Hands on a Hard Body, like um, obviously we know who Trey is in our world, but he was probably an unknown in the theater scene when he started working on that show. And it's just not the kind of show where at the end of the night, you're like leaving the theater with like jazz hands ready to like buy all the merch for the show and like listen to it, like the cast recording or whatever on your own dime. Cause it, it is kind of heavy. Like there's a heaviness to uh, surrounding every character. It was nominated for best new musical that year, but it lost to Kinky Boots, which I think was the right decision. That show is incredible. What is your most controversial fish opinion? Oh God, I have it's so a safe many. Space probably. Here. Don't worry um, about it. <laughs> you know, as like a someone who kind of lurks and participates a little bit in fish Twitter, I like read a lot of like hate about the modern era of fish. But I think some of the jams from the last, let's say, five years are more interesting than pretty much anything that ever came before it. I think the band has really dialed in um, each of their um, arsenals really well. And they know um, their strengths and weaknesses and they're able to navigate them in a way. And a lot of these jams, like maybe they get a little repetitive or it's hard to be like, oh, this is like the soul planet from Camden versus the soul planet from Alpine. Like 
it gets a little blurry, but they're making all these insane harmonic shifts um, and these like multifaceted lengthy jams that I, in my opinion, they very rarely have done prior to the modern era. And finally, what is the weirdest thing you've ever seen at a fish show? <sighs> the one thing that comes to mind, I don't know if it is exactly weird, but um, leaving the, I think it was the second night of the April uh, MSG run this past year. We were like standing outside of MSG waiting for our friends. And some guy was like, he had a balloon and he was like an idiot. And like, instead of like sitting down, like you should do if you're going to like do nitrous, he was just like walking down 31st street with a balloon and took too much and passed out right on the sidewalk. And like, thankfully he was with his friends and he got up like almost immediately, but he like was covered in blood. He had hit his head. And so obviously that's terrible, but we're glad the guy's okay. Then the next night we're like meeting, my friends are all meeting up in the same spot every day. So the next night we come, we meet up on 31st. And one of the girls in our group is like, that guy's blood is still on the sidewalk. (laughs) And we were just like, oh my God, like get it together, people. Like sit down. If you're, if you're going to do nitrous, please just sit down and take care of yourself. (laughs) When was this show played? So today's show, July 4th, 2012 was right in the middle of the 2012 tour, which was made up of two main legs. The first leg began on June 7th with two shows at the Worcester Centrum. It moved up and down the East Coast, uh, went to Bader Field. It went to other venues around the East, and then it moved to the Midwest for shows at Deer Creek, Alpine Valley, came back East for shows at Jones Beach, these ones, and SPAC. And then the second leg was more focused on the West Coast, which shows in Long Beach, California, San Francisco. They bounced back and forth, it seemed, between the Midwest and the East. Then they settled at Dick's. This show was the second of two shows at Jones Beach, July 3rd and 4th. At this time, I was still in the honeymoon period of Fish is Back, like in 3.0. And I was kind of in this super nerd checking off before I die fish, quote unquote, accomplishments. Like New Year's Eve, my first one was 2010. I got to see them in Red Rocks in 2009. Uh, Saw them in California, Halloween. Like, you know, the stuff that every fan wants to do. July 4th shows are not as high profile as those other like checkbox lists. But there have been some really historic moments on July 4th. Plus, this was Jones Beach, my hometown venue. I was living on Long Island at the time. And the weather was beautiful, by the way. The weather at Jones Beach usually is not always so good in these summer shows. It's always humid or rainy. It was perfect. I mostly remember from 2012 in the summer that there was this running song count as the band broke their record for the most distinct song played during a given tour. So even though I didn't see many shows this tour, I was loving it because I'm a big stat nerd. Uh, Who or where were you in the summer of 2012 that led you to this show? I was living in Brooklyn and I, when fish came back in 2009, I went to like one or two shows for the first two years, but I honestly felt a little underwhelmed at all those shows and was kind of questioning if this band was for me still 
or maybe even ever. I was obviously pretty disappointed when they announced the breakup um, leading up to Coventry and the disaster of Coventry, like it just left such a bad taste in my mouth. And I was honestly a little angry, I guess, that they had called it quits. And then when just when I had gotten over it, they announced that they're getting back. So (laughs) (laughs) I was I was excited. But like, you know, the playing just wasn't that hot. I didn't really have like um, a great crew of fish going friends in New York. Um, So if I wanted to go to a show, I was often going by myself. And this all changed in 2011. Um, I saw one the last night at Bethel that year, and I thought it was fantastic. And that just got me really excited about the band again in a way that I hadn't been in a long time. And I decided after that show I was going to go to Super Bowl. And that festival just blew me away once again. And from that point on, I was back on the train, like for sure. When I saw that they had announced these tour dates in 2012, I noticed how convenient it would be to do um, five consecutive shows, which would be these two Jones Beach shows and then the three SPAC shows that followed. And that was and still is the most consecutive shows I've ever seen. I did them with a a friend also named Brian, who's a fantastic trumpet player and bass player who was in my old band, Pitch Black. Um, So we were doing that whole little run together, which um, was super fun. Both of us lived in Brooklyn, um, taking the Long Island Railroad out to Jones Beach. And we, I believe we met up with mostly um, my friends, some of my hometown friends and that was kind of right about when I was like getting more involved in fish Twitter. So I was like meeting people from that world for the first time. And it just felt like um, I I could feel the community vibe in a way that I hadn't ever really felt before. I thought the first night at Jones beach was great. There's an amazing um, sand into golden age from that show. If anybody uh, is curious, I'd highly recommend checking that out throughout that jam. They kind of, get into this sort of psychedelic space that I think um, also comes through in this show on July 4th. You know, I I have, well, you'll see why I have attendance bias to the show, but I, I would just do want to say, Joan, people like really like bitch about Jones Beach and I get why, like, as you said, the weather can really be hit or miss. It's like, a bit of a schlep to get to, even though it's really geographically not very far, you know, if there's traffic or whatever. At the time, there was no alcohol sales. So, you know, that's what some people want, I guess. But this particular particular run, it was perfect weather. We arrived to a lot really early on the 4th so we could take advantage of a beach day. So it was so awesome to just like come out on the train, like probably have a beer on the way over and then just like hop in the water and splash around and get a little bit of sunshine. Um, And then before meeting up with your friends and doing like the usual lot stuff. So it just was like, you know, the vibes are good because it was a holiday. um, And it was kind of at a time when, in my opinion, like patriotism wasn't as like much of like a a faux pas in a way like people were still like (laughs) kind of like excited to celebrate like independence day and like what it means so it was just like the everybody's spirits were high and everybody was in a a great mood and just like happy to be outside hanging out doing what 
they love to do, which is to see fish. Is that why you have um, attendance bias? No, I have attendance bias because, well, yes, I mean, that, that is part of it. It makes just for like the perfect setup for a concert, but I, I'll set the stage and I'll, well, we can circle back to it when we start going uh, down the song list. But um, in June, I actually looked it up, uh, June 18th that year, I was in Whole Foods on 97th and Broadway. And I'm like picking up lunch or whatever. And like I look over into like the coffee shop area and I see Trey like ordering coffee or tea or whatever. And I'm just like, oh, my God, like this is my chance because I used to work on the Upper West Side a lot and he lives up there. So I would see him on the street many times, but I'd never like had the courage to say anything. I was just like so starstruck. So I see him at Whole Foods. I'm like, all right, Ashley, like this is your chance. Like go talk to him. So I just go up and I like, I am still starstruck. I just, which is not normal for me, but I just kind of like am looking at him from like super close and he looks over to me and he's just like, hi. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm like, hi. I'm like, you know, I'm like trying not to lose my mind, but of course I am. And we just like, I, who knows what I led with, but we were chatting. We actually ended up talking in Whole Foods for about 10 minutes, which was amazing. He was very gracious and one of the kindest people I've ever talked to. Um, but I had mentioned to him that um, for a undergraduate uh, recital, I did an arrange- a percussion ensemble arrangement of Divided Sky. He was so curious to hear about the arrangement and the instrumentation and he said it made his day that I did this and that I was there sharing my story with him. And it was also uh, right after Hands on a Hard Body had just ended its run at La Jolla Playhouse in San Diego. Um, And I knew it was coming to Broadway. So I had the opportunity to to tell him I was excited to see a show um, and that I work in theater. And we just had a really great conversation. And I could tell that it was genuine and he meant what he said that I made his day. Like he was just so gracious and so kind to me. And as I was leaving, I said, I'll see you at Jones beach. And it's because I knew I would be seeing him because my buddy, Brian, who uh, scored the Ticketmaster on sale, got pit tickets for this show. So that was um, really exciting that he scored these tickets I think he just like bought whatever came up and didn't even realize like that they were pit tickets. So we were both surprised when we saw the, the, the uh, seating assignments or whatever. Um, It was our first and only time since being in the pit, the pit at Jones beach. I I don't know like if it's an, an average size pit, but it didn't feel too small or too big. Um, We kind of, when we were there the night before, we were sitting like in the nosebleeds so we could like see the pit and we like started to strategize about when we were going to show up. I think we probably went inside maybe like an hour before uh, the music would have started and it wasn't very crowded at all. We ended up being, I think, two or three rows back off of the rail right in front of Trey. Obviously, that's he's I mean, that. He's the reason I go to fish for the most part. I mean, I love all the guys, but like Trey is what does it for me. So my opportunity to be in the pit, I want to be right in front of him. And we succeeded. Um, Everybody was super nice to us. Um, 
And I was very concerned as, as a musician, hearing protection is really important to me. And I was very concerned that it was going to be extremely loud in the pit. And um, I found that it was not at all. The sound was actually dialed in perfectly. Like we weren't, we were hearing mostly what was actually coming from the stage. That was eye-opening for me because I could tell there was minimal sound for each um, instrumentalist monitors. And I, I had like an epiphany from that, like for myself when I'm playing shows to like ideally like have like as little sound information coming to you as possible. So um, I, when I was playing in the brass band, there's 10 of us. I had typically been like, oh, let me hear everybody. And then just from being at this show, I was like, actually, I, I only really need to hear myself and the tuba to like, that's who I'm connecting with the most. So um, having this opportunity to be so close to like these professional musicians and understanding like the schematics of their stage setup kind of uh, impacted my approach um, to hearing on stage, which I think is very crucial. Set one. So let's dig into it. They open the first set with Alumni Blues, inclusive of Letter to Jimmy Page. And what they played before Alumni Blues, about five seconds of Dave's Energy Guide, which I've been complaining about for years, because when I look at set lists, they always tease Dave's Energy Guide, and I have no idea what that means. So now it's literally there as kind of a standalone five seconds. So anyone out there who's with me, listen to this show or just listen to the first track. You will be made whole as a fish fan. You'll know what Dave's Energy Guide is. that was a really fun choice you know there's it's a good sign when they open with this tune like it's a very old school song it's a bit funky it's a bit of a rarity uh and it gets everyone into it it's a very it's a very easy to kind of if people are talking you're still finding their space it's a good one to be like all right everyone quiet down the show is on and Paige has an amazing organ solo at about a minute and a half too Actually, I noted a few other times in the set where Paige seems to be taking organ solos and perhaps he was doing that more frequently then than he is in the modern era. But that is something that I noticed as well, that a lot of like little organ solos. 
And I agree. It, it is a great opener. It's like, it's a very old school song. Um, this was definitely the first time I had heard it. Um, but it's, you know, Letter to Jimmy Page is a little technical and like the meter, but Alumni Blues, it's, it is what it is. It's a blues. So um, as an opener, it's just like the band is just getting like everybody warmed up, something easy. It's probably really good for like the sound engineer to like really dial in the mix. Just, you know, what each instrumentalist is kind of doing. It was a treat. I just, you know, there's no real jam, but everybody was nicely in the pocket. And that's especially important what you said about uh, dialing in the mix, especially at Jones Beach, where it's outdoor when you're up in the nosebleeds, like you mentioned for the previous night, it can be quite windy. It wasn't this night, but Jones Beach is a very uh, mercurial kind of venue where a little bit of wind and it ruins the whole night. But luckily for us, it wasn't that way. Uh, Next up was Head Held High, which was the first time they played it since Halloween 1998. I was thrilled at the time. I did not know that they hadn't played it since 1998, but I got so deep into Loaded in between 1998 and 2012, I guess, that it was such a big thrill to hear them play this song that I first heard from Fish. Then it seeped into my DNA as a Velvet Underground song, and now it comes full circle as Back From Fish. Yeah, I thought it was a really interesting choice, and I... I was surprised to learn that it had only been played one other time. I've heard almost every song from Loaded, despite not being at the um, Halloween show. Like, I think they did um, Cool It Down and and maybe Oh Sweet Nothing at those at my first uh, either Star Lake or those Camden shows. So I feel like I'm always like getting like uh, these songs one by one. I know 98's like not that old school but it felt like an old school time uh, or an old school song just like in the uh, along the same lines as alumni and uh, letter to jimmy page you know it's interesting to hear you say that that 1998 is not that old school but 3.0 is about 14 years old we're coming up on march it's you know when when you go to shows these days there's more and more people where it's their first show or when they got on to fish sometime in 3.0 1998 is, it is, it's old school, you know, <laughs> I, I think the same way as you, I think, I, you know, it's, it wasn't that long ago. Like I first saw them in 97 and I said to myself, oh, I missed all the best stuff. But you talk to someone who got into the band in 2011 or 2014, that was forever ago. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and they follow up head held high with uh, the man who stepped into yesterday with Avenu Malkenu. This is one of the most crystal clear memories for me of this show, not musically necessarily, but the sun was starting to go down at this time. And this beautiful, not acoustic, but soft song into Avenu Malkano. Again, another rarity. It just couldn't have been more peaceful. People were actually quiet during this, I remember. Mm, And there's a big cheer on the recording at a minute and 20 seconds I don't remember what it was, but maybe everyone was just soaking it in and everyone realized where we were and when we were.
Yeah, it's possible. I mean, I I know a lot of people, perhaps myself included, prefer seeing fish indoors because, you know, it's like really captures the energy in a way. The weather's fine inside and it's obviously a Kuroda for both sets. But when you're outside at, in the summer at a fish show with your friends, the weather's perfect. The music's great. Like there's to me, there's nothing better than that. So, yeah, I mean, the sun setting during this section, that sounds amazing. They follow that up with Kill Devil Falls. And I wrote, maybe this is where the set hits the ground for the first time. <laughs> I don't know. I that that's an uh, uh that's a very editorial opinion. Well, I, I think you're right. And I this is a song like I I'm never excited to hear it. It does often, you know, have like a decent jam. But if they play Kill Devil Falls, there's probably like three other songs that I'd rather be hearing in that moment that would like do the same thing, like Chalk Dust, for example. Um, and like the song itself here, it's played fine. It stays type one the whole way. And Trey, Trey doesn't really particularly do anything too interesting in his solo, in my opinion. Uh, and then they follow up with another slower ballad song with Bittersweet Motel. Well, I love this song. I do. We didn't really need a cool down song at this point, but I'm not going to say no to it. I always like it. Yeah, I like this song, too. It always reminds me of um, the, uh, the, the DVD bittersweet motel or whatever, which I was like super into when I started getting into fish. It's like the opening segment, but it is. Yeah. We don't need a cool down song at this moment. It's a very random choice in my opinion, but I, um, they did also play this at my first show in Pittsburgh. So that was awesome there. You know, the halfway between Erie and Pittsburgh line was so amazing, but like out on long Island, like, uh, okay, I'm not exactly Pittsburgh seven hours from here. Like, come on. And then they bring it back up with the mama dance and this will get everyone back into it. The sun is down. It's been a little slow for the last 10 minutes or so of the set and we crave the funk and it gets pretty raging. It's in the box still, but this is nothing to complain about. I really like this mama dance, even though it sounds like maybe the 30 other mama dances I've heard. (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's always, it always gets people grooving, which are, which is nice. Um, and an interesting thing uh, during this song uh, is that right before the second verse, Fishman introduces this sizzle symbol. It's like a flat ride symbol with rivets in it, which I've heard on recordings and even at other shows. But now I'm like actually hearing it like coming from the instrument instead of from the speakers. And I was like, damn, this symbol sounds so sweet. I have to have the same one.
So I think like a week after the show, I found somebody in Brooklyn selling the same model of that symbol and I picked it up after hearing it uh, at this MoMA dance. Just perfect. It's like perfect. You can perfectly hear the stick articulation, which is what you're looking for and a flat ride symbol. Um, and then the wash of the rivets, it's also just perfect. Um, it's just a really great symbol. And especially the, it's like a mass produced Zildjian symbol. It's not like hand hammered. And the one that Fishman has particularly sounds fantastic. And he's very selective about when he uses yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You have to be or otherwise, like, otherwise that will be like your defining sound. It's very specific, but yeah, he always puts it in just the perfect place. Next they play gumbo and it's a perfect segue. It's a good call. Moba dance into gumbo. Great combo. Doesn't break our brains or anything, but it's two really good, funky and straightforward songs. I, I don't know. Maybe it's just as simple as I like these two songs together. Yeah, it's a nice uh, song selection. I like both tunes and it gives Paige another nice moment here with the, the gumbo uh, ending. But overall, another pretty standard, uh, standardly played song. And then there's a mid first set David Bowie. I don't know if that still happens. I feel like we've gotten <laughs> into a point where it's always the closing of the set when you hear them play David Bowie, but this is like right in the meat of the first set. And Mike is sort of what I wrote down is he's echoing Trey, but maintaining his kind of own melodic independence. I, and this David Bowie doesn't go anywhere too special, but I like there's a pocket that develops at five minutes. It sounds like it could go anywhere, but it's a short one. It's like seven minutes and then it falls back into the usual Bowie jam. Yeah. I, I had in my notes that at about the five and a half minute mark, there's a nice harmonic shift that they only, they kind of tonicize this new uh, tonal center for not very long, but it's very effective. And then they immediately drop back into like the typical Bowie um, progression. But uh, yeah, I, the great overall, Mike sounds amazing throughout this entire show. And I think part of it is listening, having experienced um, how terrible in the room the bass sounded at the past MSG <laughs> run and continues to sound on some of the live fish recordings. Like I just thought Mike sounded incredible in the mix Actually, everybody sounded incredible in the mix. You can really hear like the spaciousness of the sound 
I prefer it to what is being put out these days, to be quite honest with you. It makes it really easy to hear the way that Mike and Trey interact with each other and come up with like different counterpoints toward the buildup at the end. Trey and Fishman have some like amazing uh, interplay together. It's just like so, so solid. It's just like a pretty perfunctory Bowie, but to be two or three people away from Trey playing David Bowie was just incredible. Like um, he's totally, you know, still very fleet on the guitar and he moves so little. He just has this like um, efficiency of movement where he's just so controlled, but he really knows how to like, uh, work his guitar and it was spectacular to see him play David Bowie which is one of my favorite fish songs for sure like up close it was amazing uh, next is Alaska and the only note well it's not so nice uh, one of the notes that I put so I'll start with the nicer one where where do you stand on Alaska Um, I don't dislike the song but I probably never need to hear fish play it i think i think it is a well-written song but it does kind of like like suck the wind out a little bit of everybody and i feel like they were also probably playing alaska way more frequently in 2012 than they are now and then after that though is a big i mean you brought up super bowl earlier a big surprise they played suskind hotel and my first note was, am I alone in wanting them to bring this one back? It's only been played three times to date. It was played at this show, July 4th, 2012, at Super Bowl and at the Dick's S show, which makes perfect sense. Uh, there are amazing drum fills. Oh, my God. In this track specifically, I rewound it a few times just to hear Fishman. like this song uh i saw it at two of the three shows you just named i actually thought i saw it on the um the tour mike and trey did with benevento russo oh, grab, but I, yeah. I, I yeah i checked that set list and they were playing it that tour but i did not see it on the show i went to 
Um, but I like this song a lot. I wish they would play this more as like the mic song of the set. Like, I don't want to hear Yarmouth Road ever <laughs> again. So like, please play Susskind Hotel in lieu of that. Thank you. And, and there's like a great, it's like an unexpected jam in this version. And everybody's really listening to each other and reacting and playing off of each other. did take me by surprise and then i did look and i saw that this was the song <laughs> from the show that fish released on their youtube oh that's so, fun that's interesting think, yeah so they must have agreed that it was a pretty uh nice little jam but to almost wrap up the set <laughs> i thought and laugh if, laugh at me if you want i thought this was the highlight of the whole set the hold your head up into purple rain because at this point, you know, I'd seen a lot of fish, fishman songs. That is mostly Terrapin. I've seen him sing the Neil Diamond mm. song to go back there. Uh, but I had given up at this point in 2012 that I would ever see them play purple rain to me. Purple rain is from 1994. When it comes to fish, purple rain is when I get a tape. That's what fishman sings. But wow, they played it. I remember the tucking. Right. This is this was the summer of tucking where uh, they played all the state. The stage was bathed in purple lights. I had listened to so many 93 and 94 tapes. It hadn't been played in so long. And I just thought, well, this isn't my time. And then they bring it out. Fishman says he's going to forget half the words. But to his credit, he doesn't. He nails it. And then I remember him lifting up his dress and stuffing or tucking the whole thing into his underwear. Pleasant memories. <laughs> yeah. Imagine that from the pit. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Fishman antics are fun in the moment. That was another thing that happened in my first show. They did. He did um, fooled around and fell in love. And I, I definitely could. I'd rather them not do it while I'm at the show. But if they do, like, it's fine. It just has zero replay value to me. But Purple Rain was awesome. I mean, if he's going to like do one of these songs, it might as well be one of the like most epic songs of all time. So it, it was really funny. He could permanently get rid of the vacuum cleaner, but that's, you know, <laughs> that's neither here nor there. And then they closed the whole set. The only nod, I think, I don't remember fireworks, but the only nod to it being the 4th of July is the Star Spangled Banner. Wonderful version. And then the crowd chants USA to close the set <laughs> as the band goes off stage. Yeah, I remember them bringing out the um, 
the mics for the guys to stand around. And I assuming Paige probably had his pitch pipe. So we knew something was coming acapella, but I didn't expect it to be Star Spangled Banner, even though that does seem like an obvious choice being 4th of July. Um, but I thought this version is good. The, the, um, harmonies, uh, not bad. It's, it's a very complicated harmonic song, actually. And I, it's hard for professionals to sing a barbershop, uh, version of Star Spangled Banner. So I think it's a really impressive version. Um, and I actually found, uh, I took a video of it and put it on YouTube from where I was in the pit. So the, um, quality of the video then is terrible, but mm-hmm. you could see how close I am and you can see, um, that fish is in fact tucked, which I wasn't <laughs> sure if he actually did it until I saw that video. And I was like, yep, that man's dress is tucked into his boxer briefs. Hi, everybody. Brian here to welcome you to the set break of today's episode of Attendance Bias. First, thank you for listening. And second, just a quick reminder to tell you that even though Attendance Bias comes to you for free, it does take a lot of work and it does take quite a bit of money to keep the lights on here at production. So I just wanted to ask a small favor if you could support the podcast in any number of the following ways. If you could leave a review or a rating of it on whichever podcast app you use. If you could spread the word telling a friend or someone you think may be interested in it about it. Or probably the most concrete way is to go to www.buymeacoffee.com slash attendancebias and donate however much you can financially to help with the continuing costs of attendance bias. So thank you again so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy the second half of today's episode. Set two. Guillaume Reggae Woman starts the second set. It's a great way to kick off a set, and this is where Mike really came on strong again. The adjective that I wrote is that he sounds frisky. Mm, yeah, I think he always sounds frisky in Boogie On, and I think the audience is always feeling frisky when they start Boogie On. Like, it's a song you can't really go wrong with. It's like MoMA Dance, everybody just starts grooving. There's like some really nice staccato jamming with Trey staccato on the guitar, Fishman, some nice like rhythm, like syncopation on the ride cymbal, and Paige on the clavinet. Like, it's just a nice groove, but it's short. Uh, just pretty standard boogie on overall. Yep, I agree. And then you could hear it next with Tweezer that we're all ready to blast off. We're ready to go. It starts with kind of an off rhythm to start the jam. Trey's noodling to get it going, and it works. About six and a half minutes just after the Uncle Ebenezer crashing around section, there's a guitar-led melody that leads to a very short peak. It's nothing transcendent, but... A good three minutes of high-level jamming before dropping out at around eight minutes. I thought it was going to be over. I thought we were done with Tweezer. But then about a minute later, it goes into my favorite, what I call planetarium fish, that you could just kind of close your eyes and move your head. I'm not much of a dancer, but I am a thinker. I'm a cerebral fish fan in the moment. And I wish the whole jam went for another 10 minutes, but it doesn't.
it's definitely very early, like 3.0, like the, the tricks in their bag. And then it just kind of fizzles out and segues into twist. Yeah. I think that's going to be a recurring theme of this set where there's so much potential when it comes to jamming, but it fizzles out before we get there, even though it's nothing to complain about while this song is being played, no matter what song it is, like Twist. It seems like Fishman was ready to keep the spacey tweezer, but Trey turns it into Twist. He kind of forces their hand as a band. At least that's what it sounds like to my ears, knowing nothing about band dynamics. Uh, They break down into almost nothingness at four minutes. It becomes very quiet, patient, bluesy minor key jams. Like not a lot of momentum with this. Um, It could have been compelling, but it doesn't. It just isn't. It just goes into taste afterward. Yeah, I Twist is one of my absolute favorite songs. I would hear Twist at every single show. I I like the song itself. I the lyrics are fun. I like the groove. I like the spaces that they always go into. Like it's usually kind of more like psychedelic ambient, but every now it's like absolutely ripping. Um, but I'm always down for Twist, so I didn't mind. I guess the um, the shortened tweez- tweezer since it was twist, but yeah, just f- it's like in a prime position and and set two, and it it's just sleepy. Mm-hmm, that's um, a good word. Yeah, there's like Mike's also sounding great in it. Like I felt a lot of times he has his bass playing is kind of like reminiscent of Phil Lesh, just like a lot of counterpoint to what Trey's doing. Really tasty, but nothing really becomes of it. Which is kind of the story of this show, which is not necessarily bad, just a good time. Which, after Taste, which is a usual great solo on piano from Page, nothing more. At least that's how I heard it. But then they drop into Quinn the Eskimo, which is like the ultimate party song. Because everyone's covered it, and it's an amazing sing-along. Yeah, this I think they're trying to get the energy back up here with the Quinn and then Julius that follows it. Yep. It's like, you know, standard Quinn, just like a great little rock song. Everybody knows the words to it. Paige here does play another organ solo, which is nice. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I think it's just like here for the energy. And then Julius also, that that's a song I can take or leave, um, but it usually gets people moving. And I, I think that was like their attempt to like, sort of, you know, get everybody's asses back in gear after the sleepy tweezer and twist, you know, agreed. And then things get picked up with a good call of rock and roll. The second song from loaded in this show, yeah. uh, it's now, and I thought I wrote down that it's now become clear what kind of set this would be. If there was any doubt to begin with lots of favorite short rock songs with no jams, but a lot of energy, like bring your dancing shoes, but don't bring too many psychedelics you know, unless you <laughs> just want to, at least that, that was my read of it. Yeah. It's a little bit like Saturday night special, except it's on a Wednesday. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I noticed this rock and roll this night. And then they also played it at Jones beach in 2009 at a show I was at. And then also, um, Jones beach 2013. So there must just be something they like about that song at that venue. Uh, the New York station, probably. I would uh, guess. There you go. There you go. They follow up with silent in the morning. The horse silent in the morning is a cool down. And then when they kicked off Harry hood, I thought it feels like we should be getting close to the end of the set, but we're firmly in like the third quarter 
And it's a really short intro. It's just over a minute. I guess they just weren't feeling playful that night. Well, okay. One thing I noticed, um, this, this second set is entirely, uh, listed as segues on fish.net, which I don't think I realized at the time, but this hairy hood is where things for me start to go a little downhill. And (laughs) this is like a bummer, but also like part of the reason I'm talking about this show. Um, since I had, met Trey as we discussed previously and we had like this memorable conversation and I at some point during the show I I I know everybody is like he's looking at me and playing the guitar but like that is what was happening I think it might have been during twist like I I'm pretty confident that he saw me in the pit and was like looking at me playing the guitar and Hood starts and like the same thing is happening, except I have this condition called uh, vasovagal syncope, which is basically like occasionally due to like many different factors. It could either be uh, stress or anxiety induced. My heart and my heart rate and blood pressure both drop and it leads to like fainting. And so they go into Harry Hood and like all of a sudden I can like feel I'm feeling like this um, anxiety, which I know is like a little trigger to these spells. And like 10 seconds into Harry Hood, I pass out in the pit, which was like so mortifying, like in retrospect, like after this happened. But like, I mean, there's nothing I could have done about it. It's just like the way my body was responding. Um, But they had to like kind of lift me out over the front of the pit to get to like the walkway between the pit and the stage. And there used to be a video, I don't know if it's still online, of of this Harry Hood. And you can see, you can't see me, but you can see Trey kind of like turning his head all the way to like uh, stage right, like watching me like kind of be escorted out of the venue which is like so embarrassing (laughs) but it is what it is so i actually in real time missed this hood entirely because i had to go back into like the medic situation um everything was fine it's just they took my blood pressure and it was low i had to like drink a gatorade or whatever and like eat a hot dog um so that was like you know embarrassing and like unfortunate to have happened but then after the hood they go into shine a light and like in my mind i'm certain that this was a song choice that like trey made to like send me good vibes or whatever because we did have this endearing conversation about music making and um just the line in the song that's made the good lord shine a light on you make every song you sing your favorite tune
most people are probably like kind of bummed that this song is happening at the end of a set too. But like for me, it was like extremely touching. And, you know, that may or may not be true. Like maybe he actually had no idea what was going on. But um, in my mind, like that song was for me. And that's really like what truly uh, makes me have attendance bias for this show. I'll buy it. <laughs> I, th- I think that could be a reason to choose it. I like Shine a Light. I'm happy that they play it, although they don't play it as frequently now, speaking in 2023 as they did back, you know, almost 10 or more than 10 years ago. Now, I think it's kind of supplanted Loving Cup for a little bit as like the big, soulful Rolling Stones rock song that they play, but they've kind of gravitated back toward Loving Cup. But beside that point, this show has a very soulful ending. Between yeah. Harry Hood, Shine a Light, Show of Life, and Slave to the Traffic Light. A lot of S songs, actually, now that I look <laughs> at them all in a row. But I could see your point where it's 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 something, whether it's true or not, it's something you want to believe. Yeah. And Fish fans of any rock group, of any band uh, fan base, we want to think that they care about us, right? We want to believe that. So if you're in a very vulnerable position health-wise and mentally, perhaps, you want to believe that they're trying to bring you back in. And Shine a Light is as good a song as any to do it. And Show of Life is, you know, maybe the band was feeling reflective. And I wrote also slow. Like, this song hadn't (laughs) hit me yet. I wasn't a big fan of it. It took me until 2013, a year later in New Year's, to really connect with it. But it does kind of sound limp and slow at this show. This performance does. But as a follow-up to Shine a Light, which is such a beautiful, invigorating song, I don't know, maybe it's just at the end we want to keep playing Closers. Yeah, I I remember closer to the time when the show happened, I was like reading reviews, people's like personal reviews on like fish.net, like everybody was saying like how the show really fizzled out at the end. And, you know, I'm thinking, well, yeah, it did fizzle out, but it's like my fault. (laughs) So like, (laughs) but like, yeah, show of life, like, it is slow here. And I think it's kind of like, maybe like a character zero where people like, when people start it, they like kind of complain and like, we're getting character zero again. We're getting show of life. Come on. But then like by the end, everybody is just like hands up in the air, just like worshiping at the altar of fish or whatever. Like, it's just one of those songs. Like it's meaningful to them. Uh, If they want to play it, let them play it. And it's been around long enough, right? That people who, when they first got into fish, it was already there. And now it's been what, 10 years or so since it's been a regular, a regular in the fish catalog. So that now it's the new song for people who got into fish 10 years ago to yeah. our point about 1998 earlier, right? It's still new to us, but it's, <laughs> you know, but it's not new. It's old school to people yeah. who are newer ish to fish, but the whole set closes with slave And now we're at the end of the set where I thought Harry Hood would really be the end of it. It's been a long fourth quarter. Yeah. It's always interesting to me when Hood and Slave are in the same set because I feel like they kind of have like the same purpose. Yeah. But I love Slave. I mean, it's it's just a nice classic fish tune. But you would hope that if they're closing the set with that, they would come back with an like a pretty big encore. Um, but it was pretty, uh, standard classic sleeping monkey, 
which I remember listening to from like out. I don't know if I was like outside completely of the venue, but like I wasn't in like the seating area. I was like, like watching, listening, like through a gate or something with my friend. And it was ironic because I was supposed to go home on the train that night, but um, I ended up Mm -hmm. staying with a friend who had a hotel uh, nearby because I was just like not feeling comfortable about getting back to Penn station and then still getting, having to get um, back to Brooklyn by myself and stuff. And, you know, hope, you know, that's scary. With the health stuff. It was, it was just in my best interest to not take the train home. Yeah. Um, and then uh, Tweezer reprise, like, hell yeah, just rock it out. But like, you're not going to get a jam out of it. They're not going to add the missing Tweezer jam here instead of in <laughs> proper Tweezer. We were like, our, since we were like practically outside, we were like some of the first in the park after the show. And there were an insane amount of fireworks happening like not like new york state sanctioned fireworks just like people on lot like blasting fireworks and i'm still like kind of like shaken up from my whole experience so i was just like ducking like behind cars and stuff while like all these fireworks are going off and that actually continued for the rest of the weekend when we went up to spac everybody we camped at lee's which i cannot recommend to any sane person over the age of 30 (laughs) um but like there was just like so many rogue fireworks it's just like really uncomfortable (laughs) this 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 show like not the best but you know you can see why i picked it but there are 33 songs played in this set which is just insane like i know very often like the beginning of 3.0 has a lot of long first sets or many songs in the first set. This one is 18, which that sounds insane. And then the second set is also 13 songs, which you consider that 1230-2022 show, which I think was like a five song second set, which is like, you know, kind of rare and awesome, but it's typically probably like seven or eight songs, not 13. If you're there for the songs, it's great. If you're there for the jams, yeah, I was then and am now there mostly for the jams. But like going into my first show, I wanted to hear as many songs as possible. So if this was my first show, I probably would have been pretty happy to like get to hear so much of their repertoire in one setting. Well, Ashley Bayer, thank you so much for coming on to Attendance Bias to give us a hell of a lot of good stories. <laughs> Got to be honest with you, it was a real treat to hear not just our breakdown of the music, but everything surrounding it. So before we get out of here, can you please tell us one more time where any listeners could find information about you as a percussionist, any upcoming gigs, projects, and just overall uh, where we could find about Ashley Bayer, the drummer? Yeah, uh, you can just hit my website at ashleybear.com for uh, concert dates, media clips, etc. Or hit me up on Twitter. I'm still on Twitter for better or worse, despite the current climate. But my name there is A Bear, which is a play on my name, but spelled differently. A-Y underscore B-E-A-R. Happy to talk fish and drums with anybody. And that's it for today's conversation with Ashley Bayer. Not a very big fact check today, but just the same. Let's make sure we got it all in. Attendance bias fact check. 
Ashley's first show on July 29, 2003 at the Starlake Amphitheater outside of Pittsburgh was covered on this podcast with Pete Mason, a.k.a. Fan Art Pete. It's available if you scroll down to the early episodes of this podcast. It is widely considered one of the best shows of the 2.0 era, both for the playing and the set list, which, as Ashley mentioned, is littered with rarities and bust-outs. For the record, the venue is currently called The Pavilion at Star Lake. If you go to a fish show these days hoping to hear Head Held High, don't get your hopes up. I'm not saying it's impossible, but it has not been played since this show on July 4th, 2012. And as far as the Velvet Underground goes, Ashley was correct that the band played Cool It Down at her first show at Star Lake in 2003. A quick fact check on the song Alaska. Ashley suggested that Fish played Alaska much more frequently than they do these days. She is 100% correct. The song was played six times in 2012, and it became a once or twice per year treat starting in 2013. The bust out of Purple Rain was the first time the legendary Prince song was played live since July 25, 1999 at Deer Creek. That show is also known for the band's rendition of Whipping Post. The gap between that show and this one at Jones Beach for Purple Rain was 314 shows. Is Show of Life an old school song? Well, it debuted with Fish on June 11, 2010 at Toyota Park in Chicago. So as of this recording, it's a 12-year-old song coming up on 13 years. My gut tells me it's still a new song, but the math says otherwise. And that's it for today's episode. I'd like to thank Ashley Bayer for joining me today, Fish.net for their help with the fact check, and Fish.in for the recording used in today's episode. If you enjoy Attendance Bias, please support the show by visiting www.buymeacoffee.com slash attendancebias and donating anything you can. You can also reach out and follow Attendance Bias on social media. Thank you again for listening, and I'll see you next week on Attendance Bias.